we're in a series called Saga. And um, it's every life is an unfolding story. Each story has twists and turns and ups and downs. And, and I didn't write this next part that I'm going to read to you. This was in, uh, we have a little website that we, we work on. Those of us, we, um, I'm in some of the meetings oftentimes when we're talking about our next series, whether I'm going to be speaking or not. And I was with this one as well. And, um, and I went back to the, just look at the words that some, I don't know, I don't even know who, these, were, these words were written several weeks ago. So when all this came down and I, and I drew the short straw and I knew I was going to be speaking this morning, I went back to look at this and here, here's what was written. Again, I didn't write this. The question isn't so much what or why you experience turning points. It's really how are you going to respond to the turning points that you encounter. Isn't that good? So much of life. As Swindoll says, I'm convinced that life is, is 10% what happens to you, 90% how you respond what happens to you. And I, I tell you, I just... I don't think truer words were ever spoken. So we're, we're talking about this, this, this saga, this epic life that, that God is building in all of us. Last week, we, we heard about Josiah, the boy king, and, and how he was the hero of his story was, was God, how God was guiding him, and how he had this great ancestry. And you even see the, the, the it just kind of alludes to his, his father, David, and it's really speaking of his ancestor, David. Josiah was David's I'm not going to go through all this, but Josiah was David's great, 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 do it 17 times, okay, grandson, okay, that's, that's who Josiah was, and yet he was still living in the legacy of his 17 times removed grandfather, and, uh, and, and that was a, just a, a tremendous thing. So we want to go to David's life, because we're going to see a turning point in his life. You know, it's just all about your response. Huxley, the writer of the Huxley, famous Huxley family, Aldous Huxley, writer of Brave New World, that, that Huxley, he put it this way, experience is not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens to you. We see that with David. We saw that with Josiah. We see that with David. Just responding properly. Just responding properly to God in the midst of the trials of life, and it's responding with God-like power. In the book of Ephesians, there's a verse that um, I just really love. I think it, it, it just speaks directly to this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Strong in what comes up, strong in how we respond to it. Obviously, we at a church, or as a church, we're at a turning point here. How are we going to respond to this situation? Well, hopefully, with God's power and strength and, and, and good leadership, we're going to respond the right way. But, I mean, obviously, this goes in other areas of your life, in your careers. Something happens. How am I going to respond? Sometimes I can respond good, sometimes I respond bad. Your family, you have turning points in your family. Something happens. I got a, I got a husband or wife who does this or did this or said that or said this. Or I've got a, a kid, uh, maybe an adult child, who, who you know, maybe did some things or said some things that, that just, just weren't proper. How am I going to respond to that? 
Everything's about the response. That turning point. So, David, he's not the king yet. He's about a 17-year-old guy, 16, 17-year-old. It's really when he first comes on the scene from a biblical standpoint, and it's that chapter, that, that passage in the Bible, that if you've never opened the Bible in your life, I'll bet you you still have heard of David and Goliath, right? And it's that particular time in his life, just to kind of set the scene for you, uh, the Israelites are at war with these really nasty people called the Philistines. And when I say really nasty, they're really nasty. They were, they were bloodthirsty. They were uh, at no value in human life. They would sacrifice babies, their own, ba- their own babies and children. I mean, they were just a really nasty lot. And so the, the, the children of Israel, the, the, the Israelites, they are at war with the Philistines. They, they were at war with them a lot, actually, throughout history. And David, David is um, a shepherd boy. And his mom and dad, apparently, say to him, you need to take this little care package down to your brothers who are fighting in the army. You ever have a care package? I used to, when I was in the army, my mom would send me a care package. And that's when you would see that Rich Teeters can be one selfish dude. Because I would get that care package, would be her, her, her homemade chocolate chip cookies, which I loved. And, sorry, it's the first time I talked about my mom, and she went to be with the Lord. Uh, she sent me those chocolate chip cookies and all my favorite candies in a little package. I'd get that thing, and I'd put it in my locker. I'd lock my locker. I'd put it at the bottom of my locker. I don't want anybody. Yeah, I'm living with 60 other guys in this building. I don't want anybody to see my care package because that was kind of the thing. You see, if somebody get a care package from everybody would go, ah, you know, just dive on it. So, I mean, it's just that's that kind of thing. And um, um, so I know, what, I know exactly what he's doing. He's taking a whole care package of goods to his brothers who are fighting in the war, and they're down there, and he's talking with them, and everything's going on. And, and then something happens. That's just really, he can't believe. This comes from 1 Samuel chapter 17. Something happens that, that he didn't know about. It wasn't in the Jerusalem Gazette or whatever. And, and it's just like, wow, watch what's happening here. 1 Samuel chapter 17, look at verse 23. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. He had to like do a double take. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. So David's sitting here and he sees this nine-foot giant. There were a few people like that at that time. They were, they were freaks of nature, but there were a few. Um, and he sees everybody running, and he's like, this isn't right. Look what he says. Verse 32, David said to Saul, um, that's King Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. I'm, I'm sure King Saul's like looking at this 17-year-old boy, and he's like, what are you talking about? David is appalled, not because he's some selfish, you know, I want to, you know, I want to go out here and beat the guy up, because he's appalled because of what it's doing to God's people, the Israelites, and because of what it's doing to the reputation of God. And you're going to see that in just a moment. He's like, this is wrong. This is wrong on so many levels. It's a turning point. Now think about that. It's a turning point. David could have said, as I have a few times when there have been some turning points, let somebody else deal with it. Nah, I'm not qualified to do that. Let somebody else do that. Now, this has been going on for 
several months. I'm not capable. What the heck? No, he doesn't do that. It's a turning point. He says, what am I going to do? I didn't choose this situation. I didn't choose what happened. What am I going to do with this challenge that has been set before me? How am I going to respond? Well, you see what he does. He says, I'm ready to go. Now, look what he does in verse 40. He took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from, from the stream, and put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. I want to stop here just for a moment. So you can see him doing this, and you say, and yeah, you know, you've heard the story, and you say, well, isn't this kind of crazy? Let me show you something. There is a new book, a fairly new book out, called David and Goliath. It is by Malcolm Gladwell. You know that name probably because he wrote Tipping Point, Outliers, uh, Blink. I think Blink's been on the New York Times bestseller list as long as I've been alive, it seems like. Uh, it's been there for, like, you know, a lot of years. So he wrote, he's written this book called David and Goliath, and Gladwell's an interesting character because I, I read an interview with him, and he, uh, he, was, he was raised in a Mennonite, Christian Mennonite home, kind of got away from his faith, and he says in the interview that I read that as he was writing this book of David and Goliath, it brought him back to his roots and his faith, his, his Christian faith. And the interesting thing about that is this book is not just about David and Goliath. It's really a business book, so, and I highly recommend it. So it, it's just a, it's, it's, it's a terrific book. Don't do what somebody did last night. I was downstairs on the sidewalk, and they said, oh, I downloaded it while you were talking. I'm like, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> I know, I, know somebody, I can hear somebody doing it right now. Anyway, let me, let me just show you. Let me show you what he says about this, because this is really amazing stuff. This, I'm just going to read a few paragraphs, a couple paragraphs from this book, David and Goliath, uh, from the foreword, which is pretty cool. Um, very briefly, ancient armies, I'm reading now. Ancient armies had three kinds of warriors. The first was cavalry, armed men on horseback or in chariots. We know about that. The second was infantry, foot soldiers wearing armor and carrying swords and shields. We know about those. But there was a third. These were the projectile warriors, or what today would be called the artillery, archers, and most important, slingers. Slingers had a leather pouch attached on two sides by a long strand of rope. They would put a rock or a lead ball into the pouch, swing it around, increasingly wider and faster circles, and then release one end of the rope, curling the rock forward. Slinging took an extraordinary amount of skill and practice, but in experienced hands, the sling was a devastating weapon. Paintings from medieval times show slingers hitting birds in mid-flight. Believe that? Um, Irish slingers were said to be able to hit a coin from as far away as they could see it. And in the Old Testament book of Judges, slingers were, are, are described as being accurate within a hair's breadth. An experienced slinger could kill or seriously injure a target at a distance of up to 200 yards. It's just amazing stuff. I, I, when we were in Israel the first time, the slinger, they had a guy, you know, and then, you know, it's like any place you travel, but I think Israel's probably this on steroids. Everybody wants to, you know, they see the... American dollar, and I think they see that you're a Christian, and you got sucker written on you, and 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 uh, they're just out selling you anything. And, and one guy had a, had a what was David's David's slingshot? He said he was uh, there on the uh, Mount of Olives side of Jerusalem, and and he was just and the guy had been practicing. You could tell he this is David, this is David sling, and he would had a bunch of tin cans up, and he'd go like this, and boom, 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 boom. I mean, I was pretty impressed. 
first, the, 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 the fault there is you're thinking you can buy that and you can do the same thing. <laughs> That's not going to happen. But anyway, it's, it's pretty impressive, these slingers, even today. But back then, it was amazing. So back to, back to Gladwell. Look what he says. So you got these three kinds of guys. You, know, you got the, 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 you know, the infantry the, and, 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 and the, uh, the slingers and so forth. Goliath is heavy infantry. He thinks that he's going to be engaged in a duel with another heavy infantryman in the same manner of which he's used to fighting. So when he says, come to me that I may give your flesh to the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the field, the key phrase is, come to me. He means, come right up to me so that we can fight at close quarters. When Saul tries to dress David in armor, King Saul tried to dress him in armor at one point, um, when he tried to dress uh, David in armor and give him a sword, he is operating under the same assumption. He assumes David is going to fight Goliath hand-to-hand. David, however, has no intention of honoring the rituals of single combat. He runs, he's a projectile warrior. He runs toward Goliath because without armor, he has speed and maneuverability. He puts a rock into a sling. He whips it around and around, faster and faster, at six or seven revolutions per second, aiming his projectile at Goliath's forehead, <clears throat> the giant's only point of vulnerability. Ethan Hirsch, a ballistic expert with the Israeli Defense Forces, recently did a series of calculations showing that a typical-sized stone hurled by an expert slinger at a distance of 35 meters would have hit Goliath's head. You ready? It would have hit Goliath's head with a velocity of 34 meters per second, more than enough to penetrate his skull and render him unconscious or dead. In terms of stopping power, this is amazing. This is still from the uh, Israeli military expert. In terms of stopping power, that is equivalent to a fair-sized modern handgun. Isn't that amazing? The point that, that Gladwell goes on to make there is just he was operating from a different way. So I, I, just, I want to share that with you guys. It just kind of under, make, helps you understand what's going on here with David and Goliath. I, I believe it's, it's history. I believe it happened, and I believe it happened that way. Um, we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him. Can you get, you get that? Here is this guy. He's got full armor. The only vulnerable part of his body is right, right around here. And he's got some little guy in front of him with a, with a freaking shield. Are you kidding me? He's nine feet tall. I mean, come on. Anyway. Um, he looked at David over, and he saw that he was a little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and despised him. He despised him. He said to David, we read this earlier, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said. I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. Now, you skip down, verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Understand what he, this isn't about him. This is about who God is. I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, I will strike you down and cut off your head. Huh. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. Watch this right here. And the whole world will know what? That there is a God in Israel. 
The turning point in David's life came because of his love for God. His reverence for God. It wasn't about him. Gladwell later on says, David was very skilled at using the weapon, and he was filled with the Spirit of the Lord. Put those things together. Why is he an underdog? <laughs> Listen, God is building an epic saga in all of our lives. So much of it depends on how we respond to the circumstances and the challenges of life. Some of the things that are set before us that are somebody else's fault, some of the things that are set before us that are my fault, and some of the things that are set before us that are no one's fault. How are we going to respond? How are we going to respond? Victor Frankl, great book, Man's Search for Meaning. Everything, he says that everything can be taken from a man but one thing. This is a guy that survived the Holocaust, for goodness sakes. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude, <clears throat> excuse me, in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Pretty amazing, isn't it? So how do we, because you think about this, coupled with what, with, with what Frankel says and others, how do I get my mind set to respond the right way? Because I'll be blunt, I've had different situations happen to me over the years, and I haven't always responded the right way. And sometimes I've wanted to. But maybe emotion got in the way. More often than not, pride got in the way. I didn't respond to a particular challenge the way I should have because I was too worried about me and mine and trying to be whatever the heck I thought I should be. How, how do I get that straight? I mean, and, and, and particularly with the fact that I'm a follower of Christ and I'm told and I believe in the Bible that I have the Spirit of God inside of me, which gives me a... a and even other unique enablement and ability that God that He does. How do I get equipped to develop that right attitude that that I hear Frankel talk about, that I hear um, <clears throat> Swindoll talk about, that I hear Huxley talk about, and that I hear the Bible talk about? It starts when we come to Christ first of all, to the Lord. Starts there, and we and we and we cross over that line of faith, and we say, "Lord, I believe you came and you lived, and you suffered and you died and you rose again, and you died on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. My sins are enough alone, alone yours, but He did that for all of us." And with, when I put my trust in Him and become the follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells me, and then I have that unique enablement to be able to say, Lord, give me the ability to respond to this challenge, whatever it might be, in the right way. There's a verse in Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm going to probably say it two or three times. 
Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Be alert and always keep on praying for all for yourself and for all of the Lord's people. You know, so many times when you look back, you're in situations whereas if you had responded this way instead of this way, things would have gone so much different and so much better. I remember in, in Colorado, I was a pastor there, and we had had the privilege of um, kind of facilitating that we were able to build a church four, four-tenths of a mile east of the gate to Beaver Creek, if you know where that is. Can you believe I remember that? It's been over 10 years. Um, and we were uh, moving into the church one day, and we were still fairly small. It was maybe a couple hundred. And um, some of me and some of the guys in our men's group, we were, we were moving a bunch of stuff into there. And from where we were, our temporary facility, into our new permanent facility, we are kind of excited about it. But something had happened, and it was a, it's a long story. I won't go into details. But there were a few seats, and we called it the chapel, which were fixed pews. We had on the sides and the back chairs like this that you could move in and out. But we had a few fixed pews. And it's a long story as to why we decided upon that. I, it was really more of a team decision. I didn't particularly agree, but I didn't feel like it was the right thing for me to, 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 to go against it. And so somebody, we're moving these things in, and some guy gets all fired up. Why do we have, these, why, why do we have fixed pews here? What is it all about? And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, this, this is one of those times. There aren't, I mean, there's a lot of the other ones, but there, this is one of those times when I, when I happened to recognize, in about two seconds, I, I, this whole thought process goes through my mind. Okay. Maybe not quite in these words. This is a turning point here. I can either make this situation a lot easier, a lot more peaceable, or I can just go toe-to-toe with this guy. And I knew I could do that. And I could probably win that toe-to-toe argument. What good does that do? You know? So you win the argument, you lose the, you lose the person. So for one of, those, one of those good times in my life, I'll tell, you about the good, I'll tell you about the bad ones another time. One of those good times, though, I, I just said, okay, Lord. You know, and I kind of... this. Just exactly what this would pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. I said, Lord, help me to respond the right way. And, and by God's grace and God's power living in me, I was able to just calm the situation in me and just kind of put my arm on his shoulder and say, look, here's what we got going on. And explain the situation to him and, and get his buy-in with it, not because I'm manipulative with words. It just so happened that I was able to say the right thing at the right time to kind of help him and explain to him, you know, you may agree, you may disagree, but this is where we are on the whole thing. And, and it just made me think about the fact, I thought about this as I was doing this, so many times we have those kinds of, sometimes it's just a conversation. Sometimes it's a situation at my work. And somebody says, you got to do that, and you've got to just stop. Okay, what am I going to do with this? I'm going to blow things up? Am I going to cause a problem? Or am I going to seek to respond to this in a way that's going to be honoring to that person and honoring to God? Sometimes, sometimes you do have to blow things up if it's, if it's, if it's a matter of compromising core beliefs. I'm not saying that doesn't happen because it does. My point is, respond to those turning points that come into your life, allowing God to work in you so that 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 amazing epic of the saga of your life that God's continuing to build is going to be just amazing. There's a great prayer that I love by Reinhold Niebuhr. And uh, the Alcoholics Anonymous folks use most of this prayer, but I'm going to read you the whole prayer. 
O God and Heavenly Father, grant to us a serenity of mind to accept that which, I, which cannot be changed, the courage to change that which can be changed, and the wisdom to know one from the other through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the original. May God give us wisdom as we respond to the turning points of life. The one we have today before us as a church, but the many that we have before us as individuals. May God give us that strength, that discernment, and that wisdom. And I know he will. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to just think for these few moments today about turning points. The different turning points in life that come our way. I pray, first of all, Lord, that we corporately as a church would respond in a healthy, honoring, loving way to this particular turning point that we're facing right now, and that everybody that we run into, that we come across, would be treated with love and honor and respect. And God, I, I, I don't know, there are probably some folks here right now that are looking at some turning points in their life, maybe with their job, maybe with a husband or a wife, kids, friendships, relationships. I pray, God, that each one of us would be able to go in our relationship with you or maybe the beginning of a relationship with you to have the ability, the God-given ability that only you can give to respond to the challenges of life in a way that honors you, our God, and honors the people around us as well. We thank you for that, and we thank you for your love and for your grace in every way. In Jesus' name, amen.